remember a couple of weeks ago I gave a sermon on enduring and how that's one of the principal things that we have to be concerned with here at the end, because things go on and they go on, and uh, sometimes it's difficult to hang on and say, well, when are things going to change? And it's not just you and me, it is something that afflicts the entire church. We've gone through a lot, and endurance is something that a lot of people simply are giving up on. They're not patiently enduring, and their despair is leading them to give up in many respects. <coughs> and I think it affects us not only in the sense that it does the overall church, <coughs> but having you, having heard the Minor Prophet series and other sermons which I gave about the end time and how God will turn it around for the church at the end, have not seen perhaps the dramatic turnaround as yet that we read in the scriptures. <clears throat> and that in itself can be somewhat of a discouragement because I think when people first heard those sermons, they thought, well, maybe this will happen immediately. And when some of those things did not happen immediately, they began to be discouraged and think, well, I'll look around and do something different because that obviously is not going to happen. I will tell you this, I am not in the least bit discouraged, or do I for a moment think that those sermons were wrong in any way. I still firmly believe that those scriptures say what I thought then they said, and that those things are going to happen. If you will recall, however, I have said all along, no man knows how long. I've quoted that scripture many, many times. And Habakkuk asked those same questions that even had a bit of an attitude. He said, well, God, how long? And then God showed him a few things, and Habakkuk said, all right, I'll sit on my watch and I will wait until you make me leap as the heart, until you make me run as the deer. He knew those things were going to happen, but he also realized he had to wait until it was God's time. And I hope that we <coughs> can comprehend and understand that. Let's go to begin with to Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24. In verse 10, <clears throat> Proverbs 24, verse 10, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. I would say that the whole church today is in a time of adversity. This is not the time to faint. This is the time to be strong. That's what God tells us when he addresses the church at the end, and even when he talks about rebuilding the temple, he says, be strong, fear not, work. Don't get into the fetal position and say, woe is me. Let's go to Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 16. This one we've referred to quite a few times over the last few years. 
but I want to emphasize verse 30 for today. Well, let's begin in verse 29. You have moreover multiplied your fornication in the land of Canaan unto Chaldea, and yet you were not satisfied herewith. We have been in the Chaldean or Babylonian society. We may not have fornicated physically, but we have had intercourse with this world and its way of doing things, its culture, and we have done it so easily. And Herbert Armstrong was telling us back in the 50s and 60s that we needed to come out of it, that we needed to be different in this world, and yet the church today is not much different than the world. The days we keep are different, but if we walk down the street or people interact with us, all too often, they don't even see that there's much of a difference. Except maybe for the Sabbath or something like that that they might happen to run into. Verse 30. How weak is your heart, says the eternal God, seeing you do all these things, the work of an imperious, porous, porous woman. Our, spirit, our fornication is more spiritual, perhaps, than physical. But nonetheless, the spiritual problem, if anything, is worse than the physical. Because it has to do directly with our relationship with God and our concourse with this world. But he says, how weak is your heart? In other words, how you are so easily led away from the things of God to the things of this world. How easy it is to fall into the trap of doing and thinking and reacting to this world rather than to God. And the church was. It was often said, I remember it was a sort of a popular saying back in the 60s and 70s from the pulpit as well as in private conversations, it seems that the church is only six months behind the world. The world is degenerating and going downhill, and the church just sort of follows it, but we're just a little higher up the hill and not sliding as fast as the world. Or maybe we're sliding at the same period, at the same speed, but we're just a little behind them. And that's really the way it was. We went back into a lot of things that we had been instructed to come out of. Some of them had to do with physical health, some of them had to do with dress and decoration, some of them had to do with uh, the Sabbath and how we kept it. Many things began to slide. Instead of keeping the peace the way we should, we began to go to the play spots of the world to keep the peace. So we were sort of doing what the world was. They might have been there in July, we were there in October. And often doing the same things they were doing, at least to some degree. How easily we slid. How weak was our heart. Now I want to go back to Proverbs 24 for a moment. And read a little more. Proverbs 24, I'll reread verse 10, 
If you think of a day of adversity, <clears throat> your strength is small. Verse 11, if you forbear to deliver them that are drawn to death and those that are ready to be slain, if you say, Behold, we knew it not, does not he that ponders the heart consider it? <clears throat> and he that keeps your soul, does not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? Now he tells us, first of all, if we faint in a time of adversity, number one, our strength is small. Then he expands this and says, not only are you not to faint, you are to help others. Do all you can to help others. That helps us get the mind off the big I in pride that Larry was talking about. If we get our mind on serving and helping and doing for increasing, strengthening others, then self is not so big a problem. But it is so easy to get the self in the way. He is warning us here not to ignore those who are headed for death, to help them to strengthen them in whatever way we can, and that God will judge us according to those works. Now this is repeated in principle in Matthew 25, when Christ said, when you saw the blind and the naked and the hungry, did you help them? If you did, you were doing it to me. If you didn't do it, you weren't doing it to me. It's the exact same principle brought out here. In other words, he's saying, we need to get our minds off ourselves, and get it on helping others not to faint in a time of adversity. Now, I will say that the church is in a great time of adversity right now. And we need to be bending every effort we can <clears throat> to help those who are about to faint or to die spiritually, lest it happen. In some cases, we need to spend time with them. We need to encourage them. In some cases, you can't do anything but get on your knees and pray for them because they won't listen to you anyway. But their Father in heaven might if you implore in their behalf. Let's look at uh, Luke 22. Luke 22. In verse 32, <clears throat> here Christ is talking to the ministry, and to Peter in particular. What does he tell him to do in verse 32? But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Christ had prayed to the Father for Peter. And when you are converted, strengthen your brothers. That goes along with feed my sheep, feed my lamb, or feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. We need to be looking outward, not just at ourselves. We need to be doing whatever we can for anyone who is fainting or failing or about to die. And strengthen the brethren. We need to strengthen one another. We need to strengthen those 
that we come into contact with. And maybe we need to contact some that we are not in contact with. I don't know exactly how to go about that or what to do, but certainly it should be in our thinking to help wherever we can help because God's people are failing right and left all around us. And we need to consider these words of Christ. Let's go to Acts 18. These are the acts of the apostles. These are the things they did. There's a great deal of instruction here. <clears throat> Let's begin in Acts 18. Uh, or Acts 20, I wanted. Not Acts 18, Acts 20. I wanted verse 18. Acts 20, 18. And when they were come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Eternal with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. He was facing something that we have not, for the most part, faced yet. We will face it in the future. We haven't had people lying in wait for us to try to take us to stone us, to kill us. That may yet come. <clears throat> I know it will come on some. could come on us. came on Paul, didn't it? And how I kept back nothing that was profitable to you. What I want to emphasize here is what Paul did for them. In spite of all the adversity that he faced, and he faced all kinds of shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, prison, in spite of all that, he kept his mind where? On serving his brethren. I held nothing back that was profitable to you, but it showed you and it taught you publicly and from house to house. So he spoke in public and in conversations here and there, from their, in their houses, wherever they happened to be, he reminded them and showed them the things of God, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, suspecting them, but not knowing exactly what would happen. Save that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither I count my life dear to myself. He was ignoring self, and he wasn't allowing those things to move him emotionally in such a way that he would refrain. In other words, he became very bold. did not allow himself to become intimidated in any way. Neither count on my, my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the eternal Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. He had an inkling, an understanding that he was about to die. He didn't even break stride, did he? Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, 
In other words, I have preached what I needed to preach, I've told you what I need to tell you, and therefore I am free of your blood. He only had to be concerned, in that sense, about his own. Just as God told Ezekiel in chapter 33 to the ministry, that you must tell people whether they like it or not. Otherwise, their blood will be on your head. But if you tell them and they don't listen, then their blood is on their own head. So Paul had gotten the blood off his head by saying what needed to be said. For I have not shunned to declare you unto you all the counsel of God. Another way of saying, I didn't let any of God's words drop to the ground. I told you everything God said, whether it was comfortable or not, whether you like it or not, it's been said. Take heed, therefore, to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. Speaking here to the ministry in particular. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Herbert Armstrong could have said these exact same words. And that indeed did happen. And he warned the ministry, My work is finished, the gospel being preached to the world, my phase of it is done, now get the church ready. Which almost all the ministry ignored. Did not follow through on what the apostle told us to do. Instead, they're busily trying to finish Herbert Armstrong's work because God couldn't get it done through him and he didn't finish his work. Yes, he did. <clears throat> he outlined a different program and a different work that needed to be done. God had already called that the church was off the track and wasn't ready. And the church went way off the track and still is not ready. Therefore, that needs to be the main emphasis <clears throat> also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Did that happen in this era? Yes, it did. He could have written this, or Herbert Armstrong could have said this, and did, in different words. And these things all happened. Therefore, watch, look out, be careful. Keep your eyes open. And remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears even. I wonder if those people begin to say, when is Paul going to get off? Three years, he warned them, with tears about what was going to happen. They still weren't ready for it, and there was still a major falling away because wolves did enter and did take people away. <clears throat> I'll tell you why he didn't get off it. It was going to happen, and it did. And they didn't hear the warning. They simply heard the words, but did not take heed, did not listen, did not alter their lives. It is easy to hear words. It is hard to change lives. Verse 32, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up 
and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. <clears throat> Remember what this is all about. We're here to receive an inheritance. We're not here to play religion. We're here to qualify for the kingdom of God. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to them that were with me. He physically worked. He didn't just preach Bible. Among them he physically worked. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That was the end message. That's what we read in Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. That's what we're going to read in a few more scriptures. That our emphasis needs to be outward, away from ourselves, and towards supporting others, supporting the weak, helping those. You know what chickens do when they see a weak one? They peck it to death. You know what people do when they see a weak one? They peck it to death. By nature. What are we supposed to do? Peck each other? Or help each other? Those who have flocks of poultry spend quite a little time and thought in trying to figure out how to keep chickens from pecking one another. They're no different than preachers. No difference at all. <clears throat> it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, and they all wept sore and fell on his neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. I wonder if him implying that he was about to die got them emotionally upset, which it would, and they kissed him and hugged him and wished him well and forgot what he said. Because look what happened. <clears throat> His life was not nearly so important as what he said. That's what was important. These scriptures are very important. Let's go to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. He talks in chapter 12 <coughs> about the trials and tribulations and the chastening of God that they were going through. And he referred back to chapter 11 and that great cloud of witnesses and how that Jesus Christ despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of God. And let's go back there for a moment to verse 3. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. We have not yet resisted to blood striving against sin. I've heard this emphasized two different ways over the years that he perhaps came to the point in trying to give his life for us when he didn't deserve any of the things that happened to him, that he actually sweat blood. 
and that may very well have occurred. But we have not resisted against sin to the point of death either, have we? Either way, we have to resist very, very hard. Then he talks about how he scourges every son whom he loves, and he says, don't be down at the mouth over this, but strengthen yourselves. Let's go to 13. <clears throat> Let brotherly love continue. Now, in spite of all that we have been going through and the chastening of God that has been upon us, he says, let brotherly love continue. This is the important thing for us to keep in mind right now. When churches are ripping each other apart, people are ripping each other apart, and we are ripping ourselves apart all too often. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware, not knowing that that's what they were doing. The instruction is, remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them. Now, they were actually literally putting people in jail then. But we have spiritual bonds, don't we? Are we wearing spiritual chains? Are we having difficulty with our human nature? And are we having difficulty getting ourselves loosed from this world, as he's described in Isaiah 52, to break the bonds and sit up, to not, not to be worked on anymore, walked on, I mean, anymore? Remember each other in our spiritual bonds, as bound with them. Instead of looking down on someone saying, boy, you sure having a problem with that. Why don't we suffer with them as if we had the same problem they had? Because really we do, don't we? They may just have a different problem than the ones that beset you, but we all have the same overall problem. That is, lack of godliness, lack of holiness. We have uncleanness. Just because my uncleanness is different from your uncleanness, does that mean I'm better than you? And I should look down at you because you have a different problem than I have? But we do, don't we? So easily. Suffer as if you're bound with them, and then would suffer adversities as being yourselves also in the body. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5. First Thessalonians 5. As I'm turning there, I'm thinking about Romans 12, where it says to present our bodies as a living sacrifice what we're to be doing for one another. <clears throat> this is a time, brethren, when people need help. They need your help, they need my help, and they certainly need the help of God. Chapter 5 of that First Thessalonians. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I speak to you. Paul said, write to you. I think we all pretty well understand we're near, very near the end of this age of Satan, and that many, many events are about to occur. So I don't know that I need to spend a lot of time reminding you of that today. We'll pass on as Paul did. 
For yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. We know it more than those people knew it. For when they shall say, peace and safety, that is the world, basically, when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now, in one sense, I think that that could refer to what just happened to the church. We thought we were fine. We were in need of nothing. We were in God's church. We had been called. We were warming a seat. And we were leading songs or giving the prayer or taking food to the widow or something. And we didn't work on the Sabbath much or seek our own pleasures or think our own thoughts much or whatever. We thought we were okay. We thought spiritually we were okay and then we had what? Sudden spiritual destruction. So the principle is certainly there. There are those who have recreated Worldwide Church of God. That's what they've been working on for the last 17 years. But it was Worldwide Church of God that God was upset with in the first place because of our attitudes. To recreate what was is not enough. We must do more than that. Herbert Armstrong said of Worldwide then, you think you're okay, but you're off the track. You're out in the weeds. He saw the church was not okay. If we have recreated what we had there, we are still sadly lacking. We must do far better than what we were then. Verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, hopefully we've had some of the scales removed from our eyes that so we see more clearly than we did back in the days of worldwide. A lot of people to this day still don't see anything any better than they did then. And they settle down in whatever organization they're in and been told they are Philadelphians and that they're okay and they've accepted that and they are not going beyond what they were in worldwide. And we are in the same danger. We are not in any way able to escape that. We have to turn to God with our whole heart, not be so weak of heart that we easily go the way of the flesh and the way of the world. That is natural and easy. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. We see. And I'll tell you what, we are responsible for what we see. If we see some things that perhaps others are not yet seeing, 
We are responsible for those things. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober, be serious about this. This is not a game we're playing. This is for high stakes. This is for eternal life. Peace and joy and happiness and security forevermore. Those are the stakes in this game. Or eternal death, the lake of fire. No other choice, no other course, nothing in between. It's all or nothing at all. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. These are things we need to adorn every day, have our goal and our purpose very well fixed in our minds. For God has not appointed us to wrath. God doesn't want us to die. He says, why will you die, O Israel? Why is the church allowing itself to die? We're fainting in the day of adversity. Our heart is so weak. God is putting pressure on so that we might strengthen our hearts. He does not want us to go the way we've been going. He has not appointed us to wrath. He has appointed us to salvation. He has called us. He is choosing us now to give us glorification. He is choosing us right now to raise us off this earth and to go and marry Jesus Christ on the sea of glass. That's what he's doing with us. We have to keep that hope ever-present and faith and love, the, three, the big three of 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. He's not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. doesn't matter whether we live or die until the end of this age. Because he'll resurrect us. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. We do a certain amount of it, but Paul is reminding us to comfort ourselves together, to edify one another, to talk about these things, to encourage one another. That's what he tells us in Proverbs 24, 11, and 12. Don't faint, be strong, help each other. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the eternal and admonish you, get to know the ministry, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. I have said many times 
Peace is not automatic. Peace does not simply come. What by nature comes? Strife, adversity, difficulty, confusion. That's what's natural among carnal human beings. Peace has to be made. Blessed are the peacemakers. War comes naturally. Peace is very, very difficult. Can you see that in the world? Is peace automatically going to ascend in the Middle East tomorrow morning? Not on your life, it's not. Fighting and strife and warring and hating and killing come naturally. Or as the proverb says, strife comes like making water. It's real easy to go potty. It's so natural. That's the way strife comes. Peace does not come easily. To have peace, one must swallow pride, must get rid of the ego, must get rid of the big eye, and must be humble and meek. And who among politicians and world leaders and people are willing to do that today? Nobody. Therefore, the world is at war. Wars and rumors of wars. And therefore, the church today is full of wars and rumors of wars. And people who will not speak to each other, or who put themselves above each other, or who think they're better than others and who raise a stink, saying, as Isaiah put it, I am holier than thou, come not near me, nor touch me. You unclean thing. Is that supporting the weak, or is it putting ourselves above the weak? Is it being selfish, or is it helping, supporting, and strengthening? Verse 14 again, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. If some are going the wrong way, warn them, help them, let them know. Man, you're about to fall in the ditch. If you're walking along the road with somebody and there's a great big hole with a snake in it, they're about to fall in, won't you jerk them back or try to help them around it? Well, if they're about to fall in a spiritual pit with a dragon, the same principle. One we go automatically, the other we're a little queasy about. Has to be done carefully because most people in the church today are still full of pride, vanity, and ego. And therefore they are very, very hard to approach. We should be approachable. How many times over the years have I heard people say, well, I'd say something, but they bite my head off. I can't say anything. Wouldn't do any good. That's because we're so easily offended. That's because we're so tender and so delicate in our egos. And we simply cannot and will not be humble and meek. Therefore, people are afraid to come to us. We must get rid of that. 
so that we can warn them that are unruly. Of course, if they're unruly, they're probably full of pride, ego, and vanity, and it makes it very, very difficult to approach them. Comfort the feeble-minded. There are those who simply don't have much upstairs. It's either gone away if they did have it, or they never did have it. Comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak. How do you support something? Somebody says, support this for me, what do I do? Step on it? No, I get my hands under it and I hold it up. Support it. Like they supported Moses' arm. Somebody's weak, we don't jump on them and peck them to death, we support them. Be patient toward all people, all men. That's very, very hard to do, to be patient with everyone. We want them to do what we want them to do and do it now. We want them to be like we want them to be now. Hard to be patient with people and give them time to grow, to overcome, to be different. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to change? It's been my experience in working with me and with working with other people that we change for the most part, very, very slowly, especially on important things and mindsets. Oh, we can change the linens on our bed pretty quickly, but can we change the thought patterns in our minds? Those are the things that are hard to change. You've been thinking a certain way for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. It's not easy to change that. It's the way you are. It's the way the furrows have been driven into your brain. It has to be an absolute fundamental change in the way you think. And you have to have God's help to do it. It does not come easily. So we need to be very patient and supportive of each other because we're all weak to one degree or another. See that none render evil for evil to any man. He said that about me, did he? Well, all right, I'll tell you about him. It's like rolling off a log. But ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men, especially among the brotherhood and even toward the world. Sometimes we have a very different persona that we project to the world than what we project in services or among our own people. Sometimes we're very different out there. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That was one of the fundamental problems that Israel had difficulty with in the wilderness. They were not thankful for all things. They murmured and griped and complained about some things. He didn't say gripe about a few things, or don't gripe about a few things. He said, not about anything. In everything, give thanks. This is God's will. People will say, well, I'm, I know what God's will is. Well, here he tells you what his will is. It is, it, is, it is that we give thanks in everything, even in trials, troubles, and adversities. We're going to see that in just a moment. In fact, let's leave this and go on to some of that. 
Let's go to Psalm 10. Psalm 10. Let's understand something fundamental about God's relationship with us. Have you ever considered that the great tribulation about to come on this entire world and the tribulation now on the church is desperately needed? God is not just wreaking his anger on the world because he wants to get even for sin, because he wants to condemn and destroy people. He is sending the great tribulation, a time of trouble which has never been in the history of man because the world desperately needs it. He has sent this scattering, this division, this trouble on the church today because we desperately need it. Because God could not stand the taste of us on his palate. We desperately need to change so that we are acceptable to God and that we are a sweet-smelling savor to his nostrils. To do to us what he is doing. This world must go through the great tribulation to humble them, to make them meek, to make them teachable, to make them accept God is the sovereign of the universe. And God knows that nothing less than the day of the Lord and all that that portends will change their minds and make them meek and teachable and lovable. It is going to take that to crush the pride, the vanity, and the ego of this world so that we can have a millennium of peace. God is going to make peace. He is a peacemaker. And he is going to use the wrath of Satan and his own wrath to bring about peaceable, gentle, lovable people. I know that's beyond your capacity of mind to completely understand. But that's what God obviously sees must happen. And when those people are resurrected, they're going to come up out of there saying, what do you want me to do? Teach me, show me, help me. Man, we made a mess, didn't we? Their attitudes will be totally different than they are today. The world leaders who come from the second resurrection will say, I don't want to be a leader. I don't want to make the same mess I made. Show me what to do. Hopefully you and I will be there to help them and to guide them and to lead them once they're humble. What good does it do right now to go out there and tell them God's way? None. Did the world listen to Herbert Armstrong? No, it did not. Did some whom God was calling, whom, whose minds he opened, did they get it? Yeah, some did. <laughs> some thought they did, but didn't. 
world as a whole? Not on your life. They weren't ready to listen to that. They were saying peace and safety. We're America. We're fine. Nothing will ever touch our shores. Well, it's touched, and it's going to touch again. And it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. Psalm 10. I almost went even further back here because the way the Psalms open up are prophetic, and they're prophetic all the way through. But I want to break in on the thought here. Maybe sometime we need to go through the entire book of Psalms in a Bible study or something, and uh, that'll take a while. But there's an awful lot of message in the Psalms for us today. But let's break in here at verse 10. Why stand you afar off, O Lord? Good thought to break in on, because we see God standing afar off with his face turned from us. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This could be our thought, our prayer. Why is God hiding from us? The wicked in his pride that persecute the poor. On every front, every one that you meet in this world, and your relatives and friends of times past, will lead you away from God. Now, it may not be physical, stand up and I'll shoot you, persecution yet, that's coming, but we have a more subtle variety of persecution today. The wicked in his pride that persecutes the poor, let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire and blesses the covetous whom the Lord abhors. God hates the materialistic society we live in today. He hates our financial system. He hates everything that we are going about. He hates our attitude toward material things. God abhors covetousness. And yet it's what makes the world's economy go around. How long do you think the stock market would last in Wall Street if all people got over covetousness? Even when they know that they will probably lose what they have, the covetousness is so strong that they cannot help but put their money in there and hope. It's the same principle as going to Las Vegas or any other gambling bins of iniquity on this earth and gambling, hoping you win that million dollars, knowing you're going to lose everything you have in your pocket today, but there is that covetous desire that says, maybe, just maybe I can win it all. Maybe I can hit the jackpot. Got any stock tips for me? There's very little difference between the stock market and an outright gambling house. Very little difference. All based on greed and covetousness. Even when you know that you stand a good chance of losing it, you still go there. The principle is simply wrong. Why gambling is wrong. You may say, well, I've earned it. 
I can send it any way I please, whether it be a slot machine or a crap game. Interesting term. Or however I want to blow it is up to me. That is not true. You must use that which God gives, that which God has given in this country as a result of Abraham's obedience, in the way God would have you do it. We are always constrained by God's way. We cannot give in to greed and covetousness. It is a wrong principle. And that's what moves the stock market and the gambling casinos. Verse 4, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is, in, is not in all his thoughts. He's pursuing other things. Now this creates a frustration for a person who is seeking to follow God's way. Because the wicked seem to prosper. It isn't the people of God, for the most part, who prosper, is it? No, God is working to give us eternal riches. And in order to qualify to receive those riches, we have to go through a certain amount of poverty and difficulty on this earth. Or we will never develop the qualities we need to be a part of the kingdom of God and to teach the rest of the world. That's why he does not say in Hebrews 11 that these all were always wealthy, always had good kids, lived a great old age, and had nothing but roses for obeying God throughout all their lives. Now we today are blessed the result of Abraham as a result of Abraham's obedience. Abraham became a wealthy man. But what did Abraham want more than anything? As a human being, he wanted a son. He had other things. What he really wanted was a son. How long did he wait? He waited until he and his wife were both dried up, and there was no way they could have a child. And then they waited some more. And finally God said, this time next year you're going to have a child. <laughs> yeah, right. And they did. They had people all around them having kids. They couldn't do it. What they really wanted, they could not have. Verse 5, His ways are always grievous. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he puffs at them. We look at the wicked, and they seem to be just doing fine. He said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. That's what our whole country is saying today. We'll overcome this. We'll get all those terrorists. There's only a billion and a half of them. What do we do in Iraq? We try to be nice. 
and tell them we'll go away someday, and they despise us. But if we crack down, what will they do? Hate us even more. We're looking for a way to get out of there and can't find it. If you go now, you didn't accomplish what you went there to do in the first place. And if we stay there until there are no terrorists left, we'll be there forever. Because they hate us with a passion. This goes all the way back to Jacob and Esau. It is not something that thousands of years have solved, and it's not something that's going to be solved this year or next or the next. There is simply no solution except the great tribulation. But most men will be kissed. They will take that to change their hearts. They say, I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places does he murder the innocent. His eyes are privately set against the poor. We have people today who are the CEOs of major corporations who are doing their best to get everything from you they possibly can. All your wealth. And they are very wealthy. And we struggle to survive. But we are in the process, brethren, of coming to the place that we cry out every day, give me this day my daily bread. God wants us to the point that we can depend entirely upon him for everything we need. And getting us to come out of this materialistic world, which seems to have everything you might want, and to depend upon God for everything, is quite a difficult does not come easy. But that's where we have to be. So the wicked around us seem to prosper. They seem to be doing fine. They seem to be able to get away with stuff. Things that you and I say, I couldn't get away with that. They do. So far. So he sets himself to catch the poor. Verse 9, he lies in wait secretly as the lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He does catch the poor when he draws them into his net. He crouches and humbles himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. Acts humble. Not, but acts that way. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see it. There's no God. God's not watching. God can't do anything. So then the psalmist cries, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Wherefore does the wicked condemn God? He has said in his heart, You will not require it. You have seen it. For you behold mischief and spice to requite it, or spite to requite it with your hand. The, the poor commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. He's there to help us. 
We have been fatherless in the past, spiritually speaking. We've all been fatherless. Now we have found our father. Now we must make our relationship right with him. We were a dysfunctional family without our father. And when you find people who have been that way in their physical lives, they have a great difficulty in building that family relationship the way it ought to have been. They have trouble in their own families being the kind of father to their children that they ought to be because they didn't see it before. There's never been an example of it. And therefore, they also often are dysfunctional. We were in a world completely without the Father. That's why it's difficult for us to make the relationship the way it ought to be. It takes work. We never saw it before. Did you grow up in a world that understood the sovereign God of the creation and followed his ways? No, you didn't. And even those of us who are second or third generation in the church did not see it in the way that we ought to, ought to have. Because the world had still had its effect upon our own parents. And they did not know all the right ways. And even if they were learning them, they did not know how to make it work. And therefore, we suffered. Now, are we going to continue in that? Are we going to continue dysfunctionally? Or are we going to get our heads in here and listen to our Father, take responsibility for our own lives and our own thoughts, and get our relationship right with our Father? That's what we have to do. It doesn't make any difference where you've been in the past. We're not here to live in the past. We are here to be transformed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God, to be different than we have ever been. And we are not to be like this world who does not know the Father. He calls out in verse 15, For God to break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till you find none. God is going to seek out the wickedness of this world in tribulation until the wickedness departs. And he is going to keep the pressure on the church until a sufficient number of us have departed from wickedness and turned to him with our whole heart. I'll guarantee it because that's what the whole book is about. I don't have time, you don't have time, to wait for some to turn to God with their whole heart. We need to do it. I need to do it. You need to do it. I don't even know what it means yet. I'm working on it.
Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. That's what the tribulation is going to be. God is going to cause the wicked to perish out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their hearts. You will cause your ear to hear. There's the answer. If we are humble and go before him in a humble attitude, he will prepare our hearts. He will help us to seek him with our whole hearts. And we don't know how to do that. You will cause your ear to hear. God cannot help but hear when his people cry out. To judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. We have been the fatherless. We have been the oppressed. And God is going to change things so that we are no longer oppressed. I want to read chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15, but I don't think I have time. Maybe you can do that on your own because this thought continues and some answers are given. But let's go from there to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. I'll start wrapping this up pretty soon here. You say, boy, I've got some scriptures to get to. First, First Peter 5, verse 10. But the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. I think I read this one a couple of weeks ago, but it fits here just as well. So we are going to go through all kinds of difficulties to refine us. You don't refine silver and gold without heat and pressure. You just don't do it. Without heat and pressure, the impurities stay in. You have to melt it. We have to melt. Our pride, our vanity, our ego has to melt. It has to melt away. And therefore, he has to put heat on us. And that is something he is doing and will continue to do until we are pure. It's easy for us to despair. It's easy for us to say this is too hard. I suppose if Goldor could talk, could think and talk, it could say, you have the heat turned up way too hot. I'm melting. But that's what it takes. That's what it takes to get us where God wants us. Second Corinthians 4. Why does God say, count it all joy when you suffer afflictions? Count it all joy when the heat and the pressure come on you. Why did Paul count it joy when he was stoned, when he was beaten, when he was shipwrecked, when he was snake bit? Because he knew that's what it would take to get him to be what he needed to be. We see people who seem to be prospering. As Bill brought out in the sermonette, I guess it was, it was the last week or two weeks ago, 
he was having trouble making a living. He'd always been able to make a living easily before. He's had some jobs up and had to go to work since then. <laughs> For us, it needs to be difficult. Now, I ask you, is it as difficult for you today as it will be for those who go in the Great Tribulation tomorrow? I don't think so. That was not a prediction. It's not necessarily coming tomorrow. I meant very shortly. Second Corinthians 4. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. God has given us a service. God has given us an opportunity, I think, brethren, to get ourselves prepared ahead of time so we can be there to help others. Why would he call us, you and me, such as we are today, unless he had a purpose for us tomorrow? He is preparing us, I believe, to help the rest of the church and the rest of the world, ultimately. If that were not the case, why would he tell us to take care of the brethren? Why would Herbert Armstrong tell us prepare the church, get the church ready, if there was not a responsibility to do so? And if some were not feeble spiritually and weak spiritually and needing support and help and strength. I'm not talking about a specific job here. I mean, in terms of what we might be, which era we might be, or anything else. I am talking about a responsibility and an opportunity that really should be there for anyone in the church. And God will use those who prepare themselves to submit to him, to become yielded in his hands. He's the potter with the clay. Sometimes when you're working clay, you need more water. Sometimes you've got too much water and you have to ease off it. You as the potter have to determine what the clay needs now. And God, in his sovereignty, knows what you and I need. I doubt it is great physical wealth. I doubt it is great physical well-being. I doubt it is absolute sparkling health where we never feel bad. Because if we had those things, we would not be repairing our weak hearts. He knows what we need. And he cares. For us. He says, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. He always knows what you and I need. So whatever you have today, it's because God knows you need that. I do not believe that time and chance happens 
to you and me. We are the called of God. God is in our lives. He is working in our lives. He wants us to be the bride of Jesus Christ. And he will do with us and to us whatever we need to get us prepared, purified, and holy. And most people who have great health and wealth and have everything they might want on this earth are not turning to God. It takes trials, troubles, and tribulations to get people to change. That's what it takes. You understand that on some level. With your children, physical children, it takes removal of privileges, it takes punishment, it takes chastening, it takes taking away what they want in order to get their attention. If you give them everything they want, they become fat and sassy and spoiled. What do you do with spoiled fruit? You throw it to the chicken. Grandparents sometimes pride themselves on spoiling their grandchildren. Who wants a spoiled kid? As a parent, they won't give that child everything that child wants. As a grandparent, they think that's the parent's responsibility to take away what needs to be taken away to get the child to react the way that it ought to react. As a grandparent, I can give it anything I want, hand it back spoiled, and run away. Your mentality as a grandparent is a lot different than it is as a parent. As a parent, you are directly responsible for how that kid acts, how they speak, what they do, and what they grow up to be. And they are responsible, because even a child is known by his fruits, Proverbs says. God knows what you and I need. He gives us exactly what we need. And it is not by chance. It is not by happenstance. As we receive mercy, we faint not. Chapter 2 4, verse 1. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. To be able to walk before God with a clear conscience. Not going the way of this world, but going God's way. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are being lost. And whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. For we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has showed us what is ahead, what can be had, that he will put us through whatever is necessary to get us there. What method did he use on Job? Job had everything a man could want. And God took away everything a man could want. Left him with nothing but boils. To do what? To get Job's attitude where it ought to be. And as soon as his attitude got where it ought to be, God turned it around and blessed Job beyond what he had ever dreamed of before. That example is there for you and me. If we will submit to whatever trial, trouble, and tribulation God puts us through to refine us, he is going to give us riches beyond our imagination and belief in the world tomorrow. So we choose this way of life. We have not yet lived in caves, nor been thawed asunder, or been thrown in the fire, or in the lion's den, or any of those things mentioned in Hebrews 11. We have not been healed perhaps as readily as we would like. We have not been blessed financially as much as perhaps we would like. We have not gotten our every desire and wish as much as we would like. But hopefully, the throat is being refined out of us. God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Remember, let there be light. And when he called you, he said, let there be light in your heart, in your mind, in your eyes. And wasn't it so exciting when we first learned the truth? It was like a great light shined, and suddenly we saw things we had never seen before in our lives. But then we start shutting some of that out, and we don't continue to grow and be transformed. We get to a level where we feel we're better than the world, and then we sit down and say, this is probably good enough. Why would God expect me to do better than this? Ain't I trying? Not enough, I guess, because the pressure's still on, isn't it? He shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Here's the problem. God has given us the truth, but we are still in earthen vessels. We're still human. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That was the whole point with Job. Job, you've got to realize I'm God and you're not. And when Job finally got that picture crystallized in his mind, then God could take the pressure off. We are not like God yet. But the glory will be to him that he could take 
the weak and the fast, which is what we were, and to some degree still are, and turn them into God. You and I cannot transform ourselves into God. We can work on our attitudes, we can work on our habits, but we can't transform ourselves into God. And the glory will be His. That it, we may, that it may confound the mighty someday. When God sees us, when man sees us as God, who to believe? Who would ever believe those cultish, stupid freaks would be God? But we will. And it will confound them. You know those people we were killing there toward the end, before we died? Shine in glory today. And it will be to God's glory. Therefore, verse 8, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. We always look to what he did and are willing to do what he did. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. We die daily. Paul said, I die daily. He crucified the flesh daily. Every day we have a new battle with the flesh to control the thoughts, the impulses, the desires, and to think and act as Christ thought and acted and thinks and acts today. Let this mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ. We always deliver to death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh, that he might live his life in us. So then death works in us, but life in you. We have the same spirit of faith according as it is written, I believe, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. I believe it, and I'll speak it. Larry believes it, he'll speak it. Nelson believes it, he'll speak it. We must be willing to listen to the words of God. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up of us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Even the ministry is going to make it, he said, along with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. <coughs> I stand here and speak, not for my sake, but for yours. Now, I have to change, too, and I have to be a part of God's kingdom. But it would be far easier not to prepare a sermon. It would be far easier to relax on Sabbath morning and Friday night and all week and not to have to come up with something that makes sense to somebody somewhere. Far easier. But it needs to be done. For all things 
or for your sake, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause, eternal life, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, we're in the process of perishing. Our health, our age, our wealth, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. We renew the inner man of the spirit through prayer and study and fasting and meditation. That is the important thing to be done. This physical really doesn't matter. Well, we're all going to die, aren't we? You can tear down your barns and build bigger barns and have more wealth and more money in the bank and more money in the stock market and finer cars and finer homes, but you're going to die. You may die in that finer, newer car, and it'll all be gone. But the inner man has treasure in heaven that lasts forever. So the world seeks all these things, but it'll mean nothing, because their barns are going to burn. We are the only ones who are doing something that is worthwhile that's going to last. So why do we even worry about those things? Doesn't he say, take no anxious thoughts for what you'll wear or what you'll eat or anything else? But pray to God to give me this day my daily bread. That's what counts. Spiritual bread far ahead of physical bread. And yet we're supposed to work for the physical bread, but that isn't to be the main thought. That isn't to be our focus. Our focus is on the spiritual bread, and then we work to earn enough physical bread to get by. Paul suffered more than lack of food. He went many, many days without physical food. Not because he intended to fast that day, but because there was no food. How many here are on this telephone network have ever gone a day without any food because there simply wasn't it. When Paul was floating on a log in the Mediterranean, there was no food. Nothing to eat. Not even water to drink. Just seawater. I don't know how long he floated. There wasn't a whole lot for Jonah to eat in the fish's belly either. I suppose he could suck some digestive juice in, he'd have been inclined. Or maybe there was some rotting herring there, I don't know. But you know, Jonah began to think about God at some point there. So did Joe. And I hope so are we. Verse 16, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, short time on this earth, 
works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, we don't go by the things that are seen. Our bank account, our car, our house, our clothes, our food. That's not what we're focused on. For the things which are seen are temporal. They're temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. You see why without faith you simply cannot please God? You can't do it without faith. Because faith requires you to look beyond what you can see. It requires you to walk somewhere where you don't see a place to put your foot. It requires you to walk on water, which every man knows cannot be done. Faith requires you to walk where you simply cannot, as a human being, walk. Faith requires you and I to think and walk the way the rest of this world thinks is absolutely stupid and crazy. That's the bottom line. We have to do that which no man in his right, carnal, normal mind would ever consider. Because he doesn't understand that which is spiritual. He doesn't understand that there is a God who says, jump, I'll catch you. And believe it. And jump. Most people will stand on the cliff and say, I don't think so. It is only a few who will humble themselves before the mighty God who created heavens and earth and say, Father, I'll come. And put their action where their mouth is. Then you can please God. That's what it says. Without faith, it is impossible to please them. Well, I think that's a good place to stop, even though I'm not done.